We are going to study Matthew chapter 2. I had uh, Jim, Jimmy read uh, the Luke passage to give us background, but we're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. While you're turning there, <clears throat> I have been struck recently, but certainly this morning, uh, as we were singing of the fact that what we are celebrating and what we are recognizing with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, is that, and Jonathan put it so well, that the king of glory became a child. I've had the privilege of watching 11 children be born, and, uh, and it never loses its wonder and amazement. And, and um, how frail, how little, how tiny they are. They look like big heads with just arms and legs just flailing, and skinny little arms and legs. And it's just amazing. And, and as I was singing this morning, I was thinking of all of these little babies as they were just newly born. And to think that the Lord and God incarnate uh, would, have, would have done that and would have been born like that. It's amazing. This story is amazing. I don't know. I know many of you don't know this, but um, when most of our children were born at home, and uh, with a midwife. And um, when Peter, our son Peter, our 10th child was born, the midwife was late. And so I was the doctor, I did the delivery. So this Mary and Joseph thing would work. I mean, it does work, you can do this, okay? You're totally in a panic, like Joseph, I guarantee you, Joseph was totally in a panic when he realized that I'm the man right now to do this, you know? And I always say I caught the baby, Jan delivered the baby, I, she did all the hard work. Um, but, but there was something wonderful about when you, when you hold these little babies, especially umbilical cords still attached and everything, um, and the thought that Jesus Christ became that, God's eternal son became that. I, I want you to, to, to think of that wonder and glory as we look at his identity today in studying this text. I'm going to go through the text verse by verse, not even read it. We'll just go through it because you know the story, and we'll open that up. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would please be with us, and we ask that you would help us to capture and understand the wonder and glory of what you have done, but also the absolute amazement and reality of who your son actually is. And even though a frail, several-ounce baby, who he actually was and is today, and we pray that you will help us to understand the transforming, life-transforming reality of that. And we pray that you will help us today as we grasp that to, to really help us, Father, to, to live in a way that of the joy and, and comfort and strength and commitment that we have to this wonderful person. Help us, we pray. Bless us, teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let the earth receive her king. That's what we just sang. Let the earth receive her king. 
Jesus Christ is king. And that's what Matthew is getting at in his gospel right now. Now, so far as we've looked at the beginning of the book of Matthew, at the very beginning, the first verse says that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the promised one that was promised to Abraham to bless all of the nations of the earth. He is the son of David, the promised one of David, a child of David. He also, we've seen, is Emmanuel and Jesus. He is God with us. Now what Matthew does is he's writing out his gospel. He now, he now sort of sets the focus on the fact that Jesus is king. He is king. And this is, he's going to establish the fact that Jesus is king through this account of what happens when these wise men come to see Jesus. Now, Jimmy read for us Luke chapter 1, and in Luke 1, 31 and 33, the angel tells the same thing to Mary herself when he says this, Luke 1, 31. There we go. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, that's very similar to what, what uh, the angel says to Joseph we saw last week. And he will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne. Now, look at that word, the throne. There's a kingly word, the throne of his father David. And then, and he will reign, another king word, over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the angel is making this very clear, Mary, you are giving birth to the Davidic king, who is the messianic king, who is to be king over the world, the entire world, king over the cosmos and the universe, king forever and ever and ever. Now, what's the implications of that? What's the implications of that for us? And for what is the implications back then? What did the wise men think about this? How did Herod respond to this? And then what about us? How, how should we respond to this? Now, I want to begin by, before I begin, I want, to, I want to just say to you that all of us, myself included, we don't, we really struggle to grasp this. We don't grasp this, this very well. Other nations, if this is preached right now in other nations, they would grasp this we don't grasp this really well. And the reason we don't grasp this very, very well is that we have been born and bred and flowing through our blood democracy, 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 democracy. And as people who live in a democracy, we don't get this king thing. In fact, democracy is anti-king. Democracy is anti-monarch. Democracy is that we, we, we will make our own decisions. Nobody will decide over us. For goodness sakes, we fought a war against England over this. And so, so we have to struggle to understand this, to understand this a little bit, that Jesus is king. And so what I want to do this morning is look, this very simple, look at the historical uh, account as it's being opened up. And this is, by the way, not a fairy tale. This is not a fantasy. This is an actual historical reality. As much as, as, much as uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, as much as, as, as Washington going across the Delaware, as much as anything else, this is history that we're, we're going to look at here. And then we're going to say, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this idea that he is king? So let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in those days Herod the king, in the days of Herod the king, 
behold, and that's, that's Matthew's word by check this out. Look what happened. Suddenly, that's what the word means. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the stage is set here. This Herod is what's called in history, Herod the Great. When you read your Bible, if you read your New Testament, you're going to actually run into the word Herod quite a bit. And there's actually four Herods that, that, that come and go in the, in the, in the Bible itself. Uh, this is not the same Herod who will be at the end of Jesus' life. This is, and this Herod is called Herod the Great. We're going to look a little bit more into him next week, Lord willing. But anyway, Herod the Great is king. And I want you to notice something because uh, the way English works and the way especially the New King James is translated here, if that's what you have in front of you, it's a little bit helpful. You'll notice that Herod is the king with a small K with a small k. And remember that because we're going to we're going to contrast him with the king who's coming in verse 2 with the big k, okay? This is this is this is little king uh, as compared to big king. Now, Herod is in Jerusalem and uh, and all of a sudden this entourage comes in this kind of exotic entourage. People from a different culture, a different place from, from the East, Persians probably, or something like that. They come in and, and you've, you, you, you get the picture from movies and the things, you know, these camels are walking. These guys have exotic clothing on that's different than the people in Jerusalem. There's a, uh, an entourage. They're obviously carrying some very valuable things, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're, they're carrying some valuable things. These guys have come in. They're, they're, they're must have been a large entourage with them. And they, uh, these are magi. They're called magi. In the New King James, it's translated wise men. In some of your Bibles, it may be translated magi. And what that means is these were men who, and they're kind of a strange mixture to us. They're not, some people call them astrologers. And that, that is true. There was some level of astrology. But we think of astrology as horoscope in the back of the newspaper. And that's not what this is about. Or some, you know, crazy lady in some house somewhere and you pay her some money and she tells you the future. That's that's not what this is. These guys were actually scientists in some ways. They were astronomers, certainly. They were astrologers. And they were also people who read lots of ancient books and cultures and things like that. And these were, these were sort of the Renaissance smart guys of, of, of that day. And these guys come to Jerusalem. And so just that entourage coming into Jerusalem would have caused something of a stir that people were to see. But then look at verse 2. They came in saying, where is he who was born king, capital K here, of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now notice two things about this. Number one, they're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now notice they are not saying, where is he who has been born who will become the king of the Jews? They are saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And it was very kind of, it was, it was in, I love, Jonathan, how you said that this morning, that, that, he, that everybody was born to be king, and this one was king who was born. And that's exactly what is being said here. He is, who, where is he who is presently king, and we could say with a capital K here, king of the Jews? Now, we're going to talk about what that means in just a few minutes because Herod immediately picks up on this. Then they said this, for we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. Now, worship here, the word worship here literally means to kiss the ground at his feet. The word means to fall upon your face, to pay homage, to bow down, to honor, to recognize somebody's supreme authority. We have come 
to find this great messianic king, because that's what they figured out, is that we've read the Old Testament, and this is him. We have come, we want to come, and we want to pay homage to him. We want to defer to him. We want to show obeisance to him. We want to lay in the dust and kiss the ground before him, because he is a great king. Verse 3, when Herod, the king with a little k, heard this, he was troubled. And the word there means to be shook up. He was shook up. Herod is absolutely shook up, and all of Jerusalem is shook up with him. Now, why is Herod shook up? Well, Herod is shook up for many reasons, but primarily, Herod is shook up because he sees a rival, and Herod hates all rivals, and this Herod especially hates all rivals. And here's one of the reasons why. This Herod, and this was actually truly a great man. He was a, he was a great leader. He was a great general. In many ways, he was a great man. He actually built the temple. The temple that was there, he was the one who rebuilt the temple and everything. He was actually a great man, but he was also a wicked, wicked, evil man. And he hated any kind of rivalry. He was a total egomaniac, and he hated any kind of rivalry. But he also had a shaky kingdom because he actually wasn't Jewish primarily. He was actually from Idumedia, which means if you read your Old Testament, he was an Edomite. And what happened was, is when there was all kinds of wars and crazy stuff going on there, the Roman Senate appointed him king over Israel. And the Jews were like, he's not even one of us. What are you talking about? We don't want him to have king. And he had to come in with an army and he had to slaughter people in order to establish his kingdom. And now, and now these wise men from the east come in, this entourage comes in and says, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And Herod realizes, oh no, Jewish nationalism is going to start again. This guy is, this, this one is going to take over. People are going to start questioning my, my, my historical background and everything like that. This guy is a rival. Now you have to realize this guy, King Herod, he, is, he murdered his wife. He claims she was his favorite wife, too. <laughs> Go figure that. And he murdered two of his sons because he thought that they both might be rivals. This is the kind of man that he is. So he shook up. And notice then what happens. It says then, verse 4, and it says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was was to be born. Now notice the question here that we keep asking is, where is he? Where is he? Verse 2, where is he who was to be born? Now Herod, where? Where is the Christ to be born? Now notice this also. Herod has identified this king of the Jews as the Christ, the Messiah. Where is he to be born? And so he gathers together a conference. He pulls together all of the chief priests, all of the scribes. He pulls together all of the theologians, all of those who have studied Torah their whole lives. And he says, tell me, tell me, what does the scripture say as to where the Messiah, the Christ, Christ, the appointed one, is to be born? In verse 5 and 6, they point him right to Micah chapter 5. And they say this, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, who are not the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now notice what Matthew is doing again. Every step along the way, Matthew has proven that what Jesus, the announcement and who Jesus is, all comes from the scripture. It's already been prophesied. If you can see right now in your Bible, um, Matthew 1.23, remember the verse there out of Isaiah, the virgin shall give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He's tying this all into the Old Testament scriptures. And so they tell Herod, the answer to the question where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem of Judea, the town right outside Jerusalem. Uh, that's where he is to be born. Now, at this point, though, at this point, Herod should have stepped back. He should have lost his breath. He should have stood up and said, what in the world am I doing? Because what they're saying is, is that the promised Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. These guys have seen this star. These guys are following. These guys are saying that this is the Messiah being born. This is God's promised Messiah. This is the one who was promised all the way back in Eden that the, child, the woman's child will crush the serpent's head. This is the one who was promised to Abraham to be the seed of Abraham. This is the lion out of the tribe of Judah. This is David's king and David's son. This is the one that Psalm 2 says is God's anointed and God's appointed who will rule all of the nations of the world with a rod of iron. This is who he is. I, I don't, I, I'm not important enough. This, is, this has nothing to do with me. This, he didn't do that at all. Look at verse 7. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. Now notice this. Herod then gathers these wise men. He sends a message, sends a messenger out to these wise men, says, hey, I need to meet with you guys privately. They go into Herod's castle, perhaps. They go into his, 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 his fortress. And there they have this private meeting there. And Herod keeps asking them one question. And it seems weird. Have you ever had a meeting with somebody and they're, and they're asking you this question over and over and over again? You're like, where were they coming from with that? Why was that? Why was he fixated on that? I'm sure these guys came out of that meeting saying, what is, why was he fixated on when, 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 when? We have a lot to tell. Why when, 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 when? Herod is saying, when did you see the star? What do you think that means? No, tell me the exact date. Well, we don't know. We just saw it, you know, six weeks ago. No, no, I need to know the exact date. We don't know the exact date. Well, try to think. Try to think where you were, what time. Try to think what time. I need to know when that star. When, when was that star? And, and he's focusing on what time, when, what time, what time. Verse 8, and, when, and then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, now go and search carefully, investigate, search carefully, the word means, for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come to worship him also. This is an absolute bold-faced lie. He obviously, what he's doing is he wants to know where that child is and he wants to know how old that child is. Now we know, because we're going to look at it next week, Lord willing, on the slaughter of the innocents, he is going to slaughter him. He's going to kill every baby that age that he thinks is, is around that age and, 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 and such in Bethlehem. That's what he's trying to do. He already has come up with his plan to slaughter this rival king. Verse 9. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, there's that word again. Behold, wow, the star reappears. The star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
The star appears. Um, by the way, has anybody seen Comet Leonard? There's a comet in the sky right now. You can see him. You can see the comet in the evening. Uh, right on the, If you look out west in the evening, you can see the comet. Uh, Jan and I, our hands are too shaky because we're old. You can see it with the binoculars, and you can see the tail of the comet. It's Comet Leonard, it's called. Dan did see it. He's more steady-handed than we are and, uh, and such. So it's, it's kind of interesting that we have this comet that is it's actually just appearing just for the, the next week or so uh, here now. Uh, so these guys are following a star, and we don't know what that means. Was it a supernova? Was it a star? Was it what? We don't know what that means. We don't know. But somehow the star is directing and guided them. They saw it, and it began to guide them. They associated it with the coming of the Messiah and such. So we, we, know, that we know that, and somehow this star is, is, is back now leading them, and, and it and is guiding them over to where the child is. And when they saw the star, look at verse 10, and when they saw the star... They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I think that's so cool. That Look how packed that word is with happiness, that verse. They rejoiced, that's, that's good enough, with exceedingly joy and with exceedingly great joy. They rejoiced with joy. There's all kinds of uh, words just being thrown in here. They rejoiced with joy that was really great and exceedingly great. These guys were psyched, man. They were happy. They were so happy that they saw the star again. It's directing, it's guiding them again. It's pointing to Bethlehem. They're heading to Bethlehem. Now, a couple things. I hate, I hate to do this to people. I just, I really do. I hate to do this to people. But these guys are never called kings in the Bible, just to let you know that. Uh, secondly, we're not told that there's three of them. Uh, people come to that assumption because there were three gifts. There could have been five of these kings. There could have been 15. We don't know of these wise men. And notice also that they don't come to the manger, okay? They come to a house. Uh, hopefully by this time Jesus was born in a manger. The innkeeper realizes, uh, man, what a hard-headed knucklehead I was. That, ba- that woman had the baby in the barn last night, and his wife's probably really getting down on him at this point. And they bring the baby and the mother in, in, in them into the house perhaps. But they're in a house. They're still in Bethlehem and, uh, and, and such. And so that they go to, they find the child. By the way, I think it would be pretty easy to find the child. So we don't know if the star actually pointed to the house, you know, where they're at. We don't know, or just to Bethlehem. And then, and then they began to inquire, or, but it looks like it, it, it was very directed. But the other thing you have to realize about Bethlehem at this, it's somehow at this point is there's been a bunch of shepherds running all around, looking in people's houses and looking around and, and, and disturbing the peace, trying to find this baby anyway. And then they did find it, and it would be easy to just ask a shepherd, and he'd say, oh, I, I can tell you, you know, just, I'll help you direct you. But anyway, they come to, they come to and they find the house. So verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. There they did it. This is what they were coming to do. They've been on this journey. They've gone miles. They sat on camels for hours. And here they are. And they fall down. And they worship this little baby child because they recognize the significance of who he is. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They came to a king. They came to God's king. They came to the promised king who's been promised for generations and millennium. They came to the Messiah king and they bowed down before him and they worship him and they paid honor to him and homage to him and they recognized his greatness over them and then they they gave him gifts. They gave him, they honored him as a king. 
And then verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So they, they got out of town quietly. And how you do that with this big Eastern dressing entourage, they did it. They, they think that they probably didn't even go near Jerusalem, went out into the desert and headed, head, headed out the other way. So that's the story. That's the, that's the historical account. That's it. Now the question is, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? And what does this have to say to people in the United States of America on December, in December of 2021? What relevance does this have? What, what is the relevance here? Well, the main point of the story is Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And that is what the Bible teaches in an uncompromised, emphatic message Jesus is Lord. He is king. He has been appointed to as king by his father as Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all of the nations. He is king of all of the nations. Now, presently, when he was born, he was born the king of every nation. Jesus Christ is the king of every nation. Jesus Christ is the king of every people, every ethnicity, every country, every culture. Jesus is king of the entire universe. For goodness sake, star guides him. A star guides him. Jesus is king and Lord over all of the stars, all of the planets, all of the solar systems, all that we can see, all that we know. Jesus Christ is Lord. He owns everything. He owns all of the earth. He owns every forest. He owns every inch of land. He owns all of the oceans. He owns all of the mountains. He owns all of the nations. He owns all of its gold, all of its oil. It's all Jesus. He is king. He owns it all. That's what it's like to have a king, by the way. The king owns everything. The king owns everything. I've used the illustration in the past. I love fly fishing in Canada because fly fishing in Canada, the queen owns all of the rivers. Nobody can say, get off my land. And that, no, you can say, I, no, if I'm standing in the Queen's River, I don't care who owns that land. I have a guy who fly fishes in, 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 a, in a place that's owned by one of the movie stars or some, some big shot who thinks he's king. He's a little king, but I can't even remember his name. But he has an armed guard. When fly fishermen come in because you're not allowed to get outside the high water mark in Canada. If you get outside the high water mark, then you are in private land. But below that high water mark, you are, you are on the queen's land. You're allowed on their land. So he has a guard, an armed guard who watched because this person's so arrogant so that no fly fishermen will go out. But, but as long as he's in the water, the queen owns it. The queen owns all the trout streams in, in Canada. I envy her for that one thing. That's about it. But anyway... The king owns everything, and Jesus Christ has been appointed king. He is Lord. He is above all principalities and powers, and he is absolute king. Now, a king means this. A king is an unrivaled authority. A king is not to be, is not to be questioned. A king, we owe him our absolute loyalty. A king is to be obeyed. A king is to be served. A king is there to be defended. We're to lay down our lives for a king. That's what it means to have a king. And Jesus Christ is king of everything by God's appointment. And that's what the Bible teaches. Colossians chapter 1, listen to how it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, for by him, the Lord Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven 
and that are on earth. Now, and, 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 and think about that little baby, the big old head he can't even hold up, and the little legs all, all splayed out there, full of blood and mucus and an umbilical cord still, still attached to his navel. And this, this passage still, still applies. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. People today like to use the phrase, and I agree with her. I, I love it when they try to use it, when they use it. Jesus is the reason for the season. But I would just like to add to that. Jesus is the reason for everything. Jesus is the reason anything even exists. Jesus is, uh, is created. He owns it. He's he. It's his. He's Lord of it. And he is Lord of all of it. And that's why the angel said for in Luke chapter 2, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. And so God's message to the world in sending Jesus and God's message to the world still today is this. My son is king of the earth. Bow down and worship him. Kiss the ground before him. He is the greatest and the only leader of all things. That's who my son is. Proclaim him as Lord. Bow before him. Now, be careful here. Sometimes Christians unknowingly make the wrong statement. They'll say to somebody, make Jesus Lord of your life. Don't ever say that to anybody. Make Jesus Lord of your life. I think Jesus should be Lord of, 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 of this or that. Jesus is Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life. You may not recognize that. You may not be bowing down before him. You may be living in rebellion. You may be acting like you're Herod and you're going to be your own king, but it doesn't matter. I'm, you, you, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. You acknowledge him to be. You bow down and worship his rightful lordship over you. But Jesus is Lord of your life. He's Lord of everybody's life. And when we come, though, to acknowledge and confess that and bow before him and, and embrace that salvation, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, dear friends, I look out upon you and I love you all so very much and I look out upon you, but I have to tell you something. You all do not look like radical revolutionaries you do not look like subversives. You do not look like people who are, who are upending the entire world. You just don't look like it. Maybe that's your genius. You're incognito. Oh, you guys are sharp. You're the most radical revolutionaries in the world, but you don't look like it. That's good. See, that's how Jesus is doing it. Why do I say that? Well, let me ask you this. What would the world's response be to what you are celebrating today? To what you are acknowledging today? Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Let's go to a Muslim country right now. Let's go to Saudi Arabia. Let's go to Iran. Let's go to Yemen. Let's go to Indonesia. And let's say, Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Stop bowing down to Allah. That is disrespectful to your Lord and King. Kiss the ground now and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. What would they say? What would they do? Do you see how radical your message actually is? 
what we're actually worshiping and studying and, 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 and this season. Go to the Hindu world and say, get out of that river. Get out of that river. Stop washing yourself. And don't worry about becoming incarnation. And don't worry. Go ahead and eat a cow if you want to because it's not your relative and you're not going to be incarnated. And all of your Hindu gods, throw them away. They're nothing. Jesus Christ is king and Lord. Bow before him. He created you. He created all of India. He created all that you know. And bow down and worship him. He alone is king. He alone should be worshipped. Isn't that radical? Go amongst the Buddhists. Or just go in your own culture that we live in today, secularist culture. In many ways, secularist culture is closest to Herod in this text than any other culture. Why? Because secularist culture says, I am king. I, the individual, is king. I have autonomy. I have rights. I am king. I rule my life. I make the decisions. I'm part of a democracy. I gather people together and we vote in what I want to do. It's all about me. It's all about my autonomy. They're like Herod. And they say, I am Lord of my life. And you say to secular, no, you're not Lord of your life. I decide how I want to live. I decide what I want to do. I decide who I am. I decide how I spend my money. I decide what sex I am. I decide all of this. I have the, no, you don't. You don't have any of those rights. No, no. Jesus is your king. Jesus is Lord. Bow down and worship him. Kiss the ground before him. Acknowledge him as Lord. He is king. He is Lord. He owns you. He owns everything. He owns the United States of America. He owns all of your money. He is king. He is Lord. And you will be accountable for him. That is not a popular message. That is not a popular message. You see, Herod saw Jesus as a rival, a rival king. A king that I must now follow. A king I, Herod, must bow down and worship. See, Herod was smart. He figured this out really quickly. He said, I need to destroy him. I need to get him out of my life. I need to get rid of him. Imagine if I was in Saudi Arabia. Todd went to Saudi Arabia visiting. Now, they have a king in Saudi Arabia, okay? And they still cut hands off if you, if you, if you rob. And they cut heads off in Saudi Arabia. So imagine I go to Saudi Arabia. There's a king there. And I want to do something. I'm going to do something. And the police stop me and say, you cannot do that. We have the king says, I say, why can't I do this? The king says, we cannot do that. And I say, well, you tell that king, there's a new king in town, <laughs> King Todd. What's going to happen to me? <laughs> they might just take my head off. See, dear friends, secular people don't realize we call the shots. Man is the center of the universe. We have the rights. That's like saying there's a new king in town. There's a new king in town. And you see, dear friends, they need to see. They don't understand. See, here's where secular people today don't have the, they don't see where Herod had the advantage. Herod saw that baby and said, I need to kill him. I need to get him out. Secular people in our culture, thankfully, they don't get it. They don't get it. Because you know, you know how they pass laws now that you're not allowed to have manger scenes on public property because, and they do that because actually a false reading of the, of the, of the Constitution that says separation of church and state and, and such like that. It's a false separation. Uh, it's a false reading that now people think that that means separation of all religion out of the public square, and that's not what the Constitution says at all. That being said, that being put aside is this. 
in one sense, they actually are being too weak in their response. Secular man should outlaw every single representation of Jesus. Every single representation of that baby in a manger, that should be wiped out off of the face of the, of, of the United States of America. Why? Because it's proclaiming that America is not a democracy primarily. It's under the rulership of a king. You see, dear friends, we need to understand something. We need to understand something. These, these people who do not embrace Christ as king are living as rebels against him. Now, this has been very, this has been very common amongst rulerships and governors and leaders. For instance, in, C, in, in, in the New Testament times, especially right after the New Testament times, Caesar said, I am Lord, I am God, you must bow down and worship me and me alone. And the Christians said, no, no. Jesus is Lord, we can't do it. You don't do it, I'm gonna kill you. The Christian said, then you must kill us. I will cut off your head. I will, I will, I will feed you the lions. I will, I will burn you. I will do these things. They said, you, you do what you must do. We will not proclaim you as Lord because we can't do that. That would be disloyal to, be to Jesus. Communist China does that today. The Communist Chinese Party is the absolute master and Lord over everything. The old Soviet Union. The old Soviet Union, the Communist Party was master and lord over. We are atheistic. You cannot believe in Jesus. You cannot bow before him. You cannot worship him. You must worship us. We, what we say is right. What we say is true. We are lord. And the Christians said no. Now, all these people are really stupid. The, the, the uh, Caesar was and the Chinese government is and the, so, the former Soviet Union are really stupid in one area. And I'll tell you this. Christians actually make the best citizens ever. Because Christians are told in their Bible to pay taxes, to honor the king, to honor Caesar, to honor them, to obey them, because they are actually the ministers of God to minister justice. But what the Bible says is they have been placed there by God. They are not God's. And so when you say to them, no, sir, you are not God. I will follow you as my leader, my governor, because my master told me to do that. But you have a master over you. And if you ever tell me to do something he tells me not to do, I ain't listening to you. If you ever tell me to not do something he tells me to do, I'm not listening to you. And if you tell me to give you place in my heart that he alone has, no. But I'll still be the best citizen you've ever had because he tells me to be a good citizen toward you. See, these guys are dumb. But here, dear friends, this is where we as Christians need to understand ourselves. We have advantages that the wise men didn't have. We have advantages, huge advantages, over the wise men. The wise men knew that this was a king who was coming, the promised king. They knew that. They knew that he was coming. And Mary and Joseph, at this point in the story... Now, see, the wise men, until they started talking to Mary and Joseph, they didn't know the half of what it, they probably, once they sat down and started hearing from Mary and Joseph and said, what the angel said, they were like, their minds just blew. Because what they came to realize is this king, this ruler, this forever kingship, this son of David that's coming, this one who will rule in righteousness forever and ever and ever, and who will establish the kingdom, the kingdom of God, he's God. He's the son of God. He's Emmanuel. That probably blew their minds. They blew their minds. This is who this baby is. He's not only the promised Messiah, he's God. But dear friends, we even have a huge advantage over them. 
Why? Because we know that this king, this God-man, fully God, fully man, he was, first of all, so wonderful. They only knew him as a little baby. He was full of love. He was full of compassion. He had power. He could heal. He could raise the dead. But he also washed the disciples' feet. He was a humble servant. But then we know that this great king offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. The great king becomes our sacrifice lamb. And our sins are laid upon him and he's executed. And so our king allows himself to be spit in the face. Our king allows them to take a, thor- a, thor- a, a crown of thorns and shove it on his head and make fun of him as a king and put a purple robe around him and bow down before him and mock him and make fun of him and then spit in his face and punch him and bruise him and then take all of that off him and beat him nearly to death. And our king allowed them to do that to him. And then the king, the very king, the king of the entire universe allowed them to nail him to the cross and to raise him up on high and allowed, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven. You see, dear friends, we don't just follow this king because we're brought to the ground by the majesty of his greatness. That's going to happen one day to everybody. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The present chairman of China, uh, uh, Mr. Putin in Russia, Mr. Biden in Washington will all be on their faces before the Lord Jesus Christ one day by the just the greatness and splendor of his majesty. But dear friends, you know why you and I will be on our faces before him that day with tears running down our cheeks, looking up at his glory and his majesty as we bow down and worship him because we love him, because we love our king. We love him. And because of all that he has done for us, and we welcome and gladly proclaim him king and Lord. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. I just wish I could love him more and serve him better. And that's the only thing I wish, but he's everything that I would ever need. And guess what? We even do that by grace. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says this, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful king we have, too. Do you love him? Are you loyal to him? Do you want to live for him? Do you live to glorify him? See, that's what it means to have a king. To recognize Jesus as king. Lord Jesus, you're my savior. You're my friend. You are my great high priest. You are the lamb. You are my lamb, the lamb of God, by which my sins were laid upon. But you are king. You are my king and my Lord. And I bow before you. And now I offer myself as a service to you, as a living sacrifice to you. All of my time is yours. All of my energy is yours. My body is yours. Do with as you would like. My, time, my money is yours. My heart is yours. My mind is yours. My words are yours. My actions are yours. My family is yours. My house is yours. All that I have is yours. My life is yours. Take it and use it. That's what it means to have a king. And dear friends, we're ready to do that, aren't we? I'm yours. I'm yours. Let this, let this Christmas season be a time where you say once again, my king with the wise men, I bow down before you and I offer myself to you.
But then there's, one so, there's a sober implication here by way of application, and that's this. A king demands unlimited, unquestioned loyalty and commitment. Jesus himself has done this. You must love me more than father and mother, more than what brothers and sisters. You must love me more than your wife and your husband. You must love me more than your children. You must love me more than you love yourself. And you must never, ever, ever be ashamed of me. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Now, I want you to notice that, that little phrase there. Ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Dear friends, Caesar is not, so far yet, asking us to bow down and call him Lord. We'll never do that. We will never do that. But what is happening in our generation is there is pressure being put upon us to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Be ashamed of Jesus and his words. When Jesus and his words go against this culture, we are being pressured and challenged and forced and at times humiliated and badgered and bullied and badmouthed to be embarrassed by Jesus, to distance ourselves from Jesus in order that the culture would embrace us, the culture would accept us, the culture would like us, the culture would not get down on us, the culture won't cancel us, in order that we might still have good standing in the culture. And this is where loyalty to Jesus is the pressure that we are under today. Jesus' morality is very different than the morality of Western civilization in the age that we live in right now. Jesus' understanding of truth is very different very different than, than, than narrative telling and personal truth as it is today. Jesus' understanding of what is right and wrong. Jesus' understanding of what is on the right side of history. Jesus' understanding of where we get our identity. Those are very, very different from what they are today. And we as Christians are going to be faced increasingly with this challenge. Are you going to be loyal to Jesus or are you going to be loyal to this culture? That's where it's going to stand. And Jesus has allowed in every generation culture uh, people to have at times be challenged to take a stand. I'm reading a biography right now of a man who was executed at the age of 48 because he was going to stand with biblical morality and biblical truth and he was going to believe of all things that believers should be baptized and not children. And the Catholic Church put him to death at 48 and they killed his wife a week later. He could have gotten out of it. He could have, he could have compromised. He could have, but he said, no, I must be faithful to the word of God. And dear friends, we're going to be challenged with that more and more and more. Is it Jesus or the culture? Is it Jesus or acceptance? Is it Jesus or compromise? Is it Jesus or being on the right side of history? There is only one right side of history, and that's when he comes breaking through the sky. And having him not embarrassed by us, having him own us as his own, having him say, come as he does in the book of Revelation, sit on my throne with me and rule with me. Then you know you're on the right side of history. 
Dear friends, we need to be careful and we need to understand that Jesus Christ is king and what the implications of that are. And dear Christians, let me warn us as well of something as well. Jesus Christ is king means he has my number one loyalty. And that not only goes against secularism, but that goes against anything else in my life as well. Be careful, people. Please be careful. Our loyalty to Jesus and to his kingdom should reign miles above our loyalty even to the United States of America, to Democrat or Republican, to conservative or liberal. I don't, my loyalty should rise way above all of those things. And my number one loyalty is the Lord Jesus Christ. My greatest love is the, my citizenship, not in the United States of America, as much as I value that, and I do value that. It's my citizenship in the kingdom of God. And it's my loyalty to King Jesus. And my loyalty to him goes way above any political party, way above any political agenda, way above anything. My loyalty to Jesus is number one. My loyalty to his kingdom is greater than my loyalty to anything, anything. If family wants me to reject him, I turn and I will not reject Jesus. If my country turns against him, and as my country is turning against him increasingly, I stand with Jesus and Jesus alone. And dear friends, that's where we need to be. And that's the call. And that's the call. Is Jesus, do you function with Jesus as king? Is Jesus your king? Yes. Are you acting like Jesus is king? Are we living like Jesus is king? Are we standing like Jesus is king in our lives? Is he our number one love? Is he our number one loyalty? Is he our number one? This Christmas season, I would really urge you to think about this idea that Jesus is king. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Is Jesus your Lord and king? Is your life being lived in a way that is seen that Jesus is king? When Jesus comes back and you stand before this great king and he evaluates you, will it be shown that you bow down in loving obedience to him, believing and embracing him, or have you lived a rebel against him? Are you a rebel against King Jesus right now? I urge you, lay down your arms. Lay down your body. Kiss the dust. Proclaim this wonderful, wonderful Savior, King. King in your life. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for leaving your throne of glory and all of its comfort, all of its joy, a kingdom of love and peace and righteousness and purity. And there you ruled and reigned as the Father's right hand. And you left all of that and were born from a virgin and breathed in that cold night air for the first time and let out a yelp and cried and had an umbilical cord and had to be wiped and cleaned up, diapered and needed a human being whom you created. You needed her milk in order to sustain your life. And you lived among us and you loved us and you cared for us. You showed the father 
and you washed our feet and you died for us and you rose again and you're king. You're king. You are king. You are king of every nation, every country, every people. Thank you that you've opened our eyes. Thank you that you drew us to yourself. Thank you that we acknowledge you as king because you've tamed our wicked hearts. Thank you for saving us. And I pray that if there are any here today who are not bowing the knee, who are calling their own shots, who are living their own autonomous life, I pray, oh, please, have mercy upon them, Lord Jesus. Don't judge them. Please save them. Deliver them. Help them to come to know the joy of such a wonderful king. We praise you. We glorify you. We magnify you this day. In your precious name we say, we say this. Amen.